On today's podcast, I interview Sam and Betty Lou, two of my closest friends. Sam suffers from retinitis pigmentosa, which is an eye condition, and Betty Lou suffers from autoimmune disease, which affects her whole body. The sound quality isn't great at times, but it's definitely worth a listen. Cue the music. a happy tune you love to croon they call it sand song it's catchy as can be the melody they call it sand song nothing on your mind and then you find hey guys hey dennis how you doing we're good how are you good good hey listen so, Betty Lou, I just want to make you um, aware that make sure that, that Sam doesn't have his head up his rear end so I can hear him a little bit better. Oh, do you mean I got to take the sock out of his mouth? Yes. Are you, are you, uh, is this part of the podcast already? Yes, it is. Remember, I have Tourette's. <laughs> I know you do. Can you get a little bit closer? Sure. Yeah, I can't hear Sam very well. Oh, what a shame. Here's Sam. Okay, how about that, Dennis? Talk, Sam. Hi, Dennis. Okay, good. All right, uh, Betty Lou, I asked Sam this question about, was it Mary, uh, Marianne or Ginger, right? Mm-hmm. And he said Marianne, which was the correct answer. So my question to you is, which one of the Darrens did you like the best on Bewitched? Uh, the first one. Would that be Dick Sargent? I think, yeah, okay. The yeah, yeah, one. yeah. He was the first one. He was only on for not that long. Yeah, because he had back problems. Right, right. Okay, that would be, I liked him the best. All right. Now, Sam, how old were you when you realized that you had vision problems? Um. Uh, the first time I ever realized something might be wrong was I was in the army playing basketball and got hit right in the face with a basketball. And that had never happened before because I was a pretty good basketball player. So I would have been maybe 27, 28, I guess. Maybe oh, 19. wow, that late? Yeah, yeah. Before that, I, I had to wear glasses. But I mean, that was just a kid wearing glasses. I mean, I, you know. And uh, I got diagnosed that I had RP when I was in my 40s. What is retinitis pigmentosa? Uh, retinitis pigmentosa, I don't know exactly what it is, but it first starts out as you lose your peripheral vision, then you lose your night vision, then your vision keeps getting worse and worse, and then finally, you lose all your vision. So it's so like by the time it, it just kind of closes in on you. Yeah, it did that for a while, but now I've got other problems with it. I'm I'm seeing, um, you know, I'm looking through a cloud all the time. 
Right. When you were diagnosed with that, what did the doctor tell you? And, and what was your reaction? When the doctor finally told me, he said, no treatment, no cure. And I had taken a lot of hits when I was a kid, but that was the biggest gut punch I ever had in my life. And you were 40? I was probably a little older than that. Yeah, it was, it was around 1995, maybe 1990, in that range. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I turned 40 in 87. So it was after uh, 87. And so when you hear that there's no cure, no treatment, how do you react to that? Are you angry? Uh, I don't think I was angry. I was more stunned. And in a lot of ways, it probably made it easier because I didn't have to go get my eyes shot up with needles and all the other stuff. And uh, the doctor at the time told me that uh, anybody he had had as a patient never went completely blind. And uh, so far, he's been right. Although, you know, they won't let me drive a car, as you well know. Right. So before you were 27 and you were wearing glasses, the, the doctors never noticed anything wrong with your eyes? No, there's nothing to notice. And is that hereditary? Well, it's, it's supposed to be hereditary, but no one in my family ever had any eye problems, and I'm an only child. So I don't know if it's hereditary or whatever, but it's uh, something I never knew. Like I, I didn't have real good eyesight, but I never had any problem with peripheral vision or anything. And that's what the first indication is that there's something wrong. I had to take a field of vision. The doctor, the doctor now can examine me and see how far the rods are moved and how far, you know, he, he has a whole bunch of doctor um, analysis, but I don't know what he's talking about. And he knows that nothing's going to change. So I really don't pay too much attention. If I can add to that, Dr. Prince always says that um, it's, there's such little sight and um, he no longer can tell. He depends on Sam to tell him what he sees. Right. So, so Sam, you were talking about when you went into the military mm -hmm. and obviously they do a pretty thorough check on you. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> it's the military. I found out that I was colorblind after I had been through basic training and was getting ready to go to my next spot. And there was like an exit interview and they were showing me the, have uh, you ever seen the thing where it has the numbers on it? Yeah. And I'm flipping through the numbers and I'm saying nothing, nothing, nothing. And finally the guy says to me, are you saying you're seeing zeros or nothing? I said, I'm seeing nothing. There's nothing there, but a bunch of colors. He goes, do you know you're colorblind? And my quote comment was, will it get me out? Right. Yeah. His comment was, no, we're going to make you a forward observer because you can see through the camouflage. Uh, so, what, what, But wait a minute. Like when you were young, because I remember getting that colorblind test when I was like 12 or 13. They didn't do that to you when you were younger? Nah. Nah. Hmm. Not at all. Not at all. I went and wore glasses, you know. 
they they uh, made sure that you know my eyes were were good for glasses, and I didn't I didn't have to wear glasses till I was about fourteen. I was um, I I was down in Wildwood, and I couldn't read the names of the boats across the harbor from where we were staying. And my dad said, "How come you can't read them?" I'm like, "I don't know, Dad. I can't see them." And that's when we went to the eye doctor. You know, so remember this was back in the dark ages where you know uh, you didn't exactly go to the doctor every time something was a little wrong with you right now betty lou you had when did you start to notice your issues with your autoimmune disease um actually my doctor um that um was my family doctor told me that back probably in 1980 that she felt there was definitely autoimmune issues, but we would have to wait till um, something, symptoms showed up. So it was probably the late nine, 1990s, yeah, when I started having issues with my eyes, with the um, erosions in the eye, dry eye, and that started the ball rolling. So wait a minute, so... In 1980, and then it didn't manifest until the late 90s? Yep, yep. So it was 20 years? Yep. I had a very wise um, old doctor, and there was things that she couldn't explain, and and she just said, you know, autoimmunes, uh, you know, it takes a while for them to manifest, and then, and then we'll know. Since she had passed away before that, um, but she was right. She was right because I have in the fact, two of them. In fact, there, Dennis, autoimmune wasn't something that people even talked about. There was, I believe, it was called chronic fatigue syndrome that you you first had, and then the autoimmune. Nobody ever said autoimmune till you know twenty years later. It was there was something wrong. I even went to an infectious disease doctor at Abington Hospital, and he did all kinds of tests, and he said, some of your markings are autoimmune, but you don't have any of those symptoms. So, What were you, tired that made you go to the doctor? Um, yes, I was exhausted. And at that time, they were, um, I had a lot of fatigue, and a, and a lot of times that's when they were diagnosing um, chronic Higgs syndrome, which I do not have. Um, but that was the regular answer if you had problems like that. Did they put you on any medication? Nope. So when it, it first occurred with your eyes, Sam, you got to be a little freaked out because you're having eye issues as well. Uh, yeah, to put it, put it mildly. As, as the doctor said many times, we only have two eyes between the four of us, and her eyes were, and she's had more eye, she literally has had more things done to her eyes than I ever have. I mean, she's had all kinds of interesting procedures done to fix the, uh, the, the, um, erosion, the, the corneal erosion and the tear, and then she went to the doctor one time, and the guy, the guy, what did he do to you? He cut your... I had a sty and, and um, he sliced the uh, cornea. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so how come eyes. it shows up in your eyes first? Yes. But why? 
But why in your eyes? Like, why Why not? in my eyes? We were in Arizona on vacation, and we took a train um, to the Grand Canyon, and we were in the back of the train that was all open. We were in, like, the caboose. We decided we wanted to sit in the caboose, and between the wind and the dry air of Arizona, my eyes were killing me. Um they were dry and I, they were, um, it was blurry. And as soon as that happened, when we got home, I went right to the doctor. They diagnosed me then with just the classic dry eye. And then as it progressed and got worse and worse and worse and worse, um, uh, that's when my corneal specialist, because I switched from the retinal specialist to the cornea specialist, and she was the one that said, you know, it's Sjogren's. When it, it starts in your eye, when does it start to flare up in other parts of your body? Um, with Sjogren's, you have a lot of fatigue. Um a lot of things that they didn't understand what was going on with me because it dries, just doesn't dry your eyes out. It dries your organs, anything, everything in your body needs fluid. So it just doesn't dry your eyes out. It, so it dries organs out. So I was having problems with my intestinal tract. Um, they kept thinking I had um, infections in my mouth and it was the Sjogren's. So it's, it's a multi thing. It's just not, you know, cause people will say, Oh you have dry eye. And I just go, yeah, I have dry eye <laughs> and leave it at that. Yeah. But when you say dry out your organs, what is that has something to do with the, uh, with the water in your body? Yes. It's the fluid in your body. That show grin sucks all the fluid out of your body. I am actually on a medication now, but, and I've been on it for quite a while, which is called polycarpine. And it puts extra fluid in your body. Um, it produces extra, makes you produce. Because if I mess up and I take two instead of one, I my head gets soaking wet. It's the strangest thing. But yes, that does help. The, the medication does help. But it took a while to get on that. So, so when, before you were on the medication, what were you sweating a lot? No, I wasn't sweating. I don't sweat. I don't hmm. sweat. I don't produce enough fluid in my body to sweat. Okay. Okay. So, well, you're, I, I thought I was going to be talking to Sam more than you, Betty. You're a tough, you're a tough uh, nut to crack here. Yeah. So what, what were the, because I know when I had my diagnosis and it was a rare autoimmune disease, this sounds really rare. Uh, no, you would be surprised. Um, it's, well, a lot of people are misdiagnosed if you, if you don't have a doctor that really takes time or if you don't end up, like I was religious with what they told me to do, which was use the tears um, bathe my eyes, but it, it gets to the point when the chagrin gets really bad, there's really nothing you can do about it because it, I just kept getting erosions and erosions and erosions, um, continuously. They would put a contact bandage on it and it would be off for a day and then it would erupt again because the eyes were so dry. 
because when you sleep, your eyes still move. So my eye, not to be gross, but my eye would, would get stuck to my eyelid. So when I opened my my eyelid up, it's like taking a Band-Aid off your arm. Jeez. Sam, when did you stop working and, and how hard was that for you? Uh, I stopped working on May the 31st, 2006. I, I had the opportunity to set up exactly when I wanted to stop working. And uh, I spent the six months before that trying to write procedures for basically everything I did. And uh, at the end of May, I uh, stopped working and it was about as hard as uh, opening and closing a door. To me, work was work. When did you stop driving? Stop driving in September of 2005 because I was still driving, but we were in the doctor's office and the person that lived with me <laughs> ratted me out and told the doctor I was still driving. So and at that point, he wanted to take my driver's license. But I said, you can't do that. I need ID. And I said, I won't drive. And he asked Betty Lou, he goes, is he telling the truth? He goes, yeah, if he says he's not going to do something, he ain't going to do it. So, Wait a minute. So let me get the math correct. So you stopped worth working in May of 2006. Right. In September Stop. 2005, you were told you can't drive anymore. Yep. So what happened within those eight months? I had, uh, where I worked, they, they set up that there was a girl that worked uh, with me that lived right across the street in our, you know, right across the street in Bucks County, about a half a mile away. And she would come and pick me up every day. And I would go to work with her and then come back home. Yeah. What was the reasoning for you not working anymore? You just couldn't see the screen, the computer screen? That was a couple reasons. The president of the company always thought that I was like going to burn the building down because I had a magnifying glass that was about probably six inches across. And he was always telling me, you're going to leave that in the sun and you're going to burn our company. <laughs> how, so, and how, he was coming home with headaches. From oh, absolutely. I can imagine. And, you know, being an accountant, you know, that was, that was the main issue. Sam, when do you think you should have stopped working, looking back on it now? Uh, let's see, I started working about May of 1969 i probably should have stopped in june of 1969 <laughs> <laughs> i mean because i know with me like i did everything i could to keep on working to keep on working to keep on driving and looking back on it i probably should have stopped like well, the, two years before the, that driving is, i could have i could have stopped working years before that because my doctor in about 19 in 1997 I don't know how I did it, but I completely totaled a Ford F-150 4x4. I hit a bridge. I hit a, a abutment of a guardrail at 45 miles an hour head on. And I hit it so hard that it drove the motor back one foot. And it pulled the cab in about six inches. And... I was able to drive this truck, which I don't know how I could, about maybe a quarter mile to where there were lights. 
and then called the cops. And this was at nighttime, so his night vision was yeah. was gone by then, was starting to go. And, it, and at that point, you know, from then on, the doctor basically said, with my RP, which had progressed, you know, he, he, I had been going to him for several years before that. And he basically said, you know, you can stop working anytime you want. And I was like, no, I don't want to stop working. I want to keep working. I want to keep working. But when I got to be about 58, I decided I had enough and uh, I stopped working then. So that's why I, I stopped in May of uh, uh, 06 because I would be, I was 58 years old. And my dad had died when he was 59 years old. So I figured I'd get at least a year before something really bad happened. Okay. Getting back to that accident, Betty Lou, how did, how did he come home and tell you like about that accident? Did he lie about it? Did he say <laughs> it was somebody else's fault? Like anything to keep on driving? Um, he said he wouldn't drive at nighttime anymore. I was still a nervous wreck. Um, they actually, um, a truck driver brought him, the tow truck driver brought him home. I couldn't believe, you know, what the truck looked like. Yeah. And I was sick as could be. Um, I wanted him to stop working then. He was driving all the way over to New Jersey, back and forth every day, and which made me ill, but he's bullheaded. So then he promised me that he would not drive at nighttime. He was still traveling, and and I mean to California and other places, and he knew then that he had to tell the company that he couldn't do all that, that he couldn't be a, a group controller that had to go to all the different companies, which in a sense made me feel more secure. And that's when I moved down to work in the same business campus you were in, Dennis, at Oppenheimer. Right. About six and a half miles from my house. It, when I was a group controller, I was driving about, I was, I was literally ruling in a truck every four years. I put a hundred miles, hundred thousand miles on a truck every four years. So I was driving 25,000 miles a year and it just was beating the, the Jesus out of the uh, truck. So from that point, it was a pretty easy shot to get from, uh, where I was, uh, Inductive firm transferred me to Oppenheimer after some uh, uh, interesting discussions I had uh, with the uh, uh, with Hank Rowan, the chairman of the board. But uh, uh, I was there, and then I worked there for nine years. So, Betty Lou, when did you stop working? Um, my mother passed away in two thousand and three. I think because when she was ill, I was only, I was unable to go to work and it really made me feel bad, even though my boss was great. But after my mother passed away, um, then I was with my dad a lot. So it was, I probably worked another year after that. So it was 2004 when I stopped working. And what corner did you work on? <laughs> <laughs> Betty Lou, I have been waiting to ask you that question. I just didn't know how to incorporate it into the podcast. <laughs> yeah, Lyon, Kilman, Susquehanna, and Drusher. Well, that brings up another thing, Dennis. 
If you ask so, me where I met Betty Lou, I could say with all honesty, I met her in my apartment. Okay. Okay. Get that one. Sam, describe what it was like to go, like what made you decide to go to the Association for the Blind? Did you know somebody? And I knew nobody. And quite frankly, at that time, I didn't think I was blind enough because I still had really good central vision. Uh, I wasn't driving or anything because I stopped working. And when I first started going there, um, I literally had good, you know, I, I was still. Hey, most of you know that I wrote a book, but for those who don't, my book is called As Far As The Eye Can See. It depicts my struggle while losing my vision. It is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I actually okay, cool. think Dr. Prince was the one that convinced Sam to go to the Blind Association, the eye doctor. Sam, how did that make you feel that you had to go to a, a blind center at such a young age? Uh, not much bothers me, Dennis. It didn't make that big a deal to me. I, I was, you know, I was just looking for, for anything to kind of help myself. I, I don't, I, I, you know, after I was told about no treatment, no cure, everything else was just like water off a duck's back. I just dealt with it. So you just accepted it and moved on? I, yeah, I guess I accepted it and moved on. I wasn't real, wasn't real happy about the whole thing, but I mean, going to the center certainly, uh, uh helped, helped me out at the beginning and meeting the people. But, uh, uh when you I, met other people I, I, at this. Yeah, the, the Emily's and then uh, there was a, a few other people that you don't know that they had come and gone or actually passed away. Uh, one of the few people that were at the center when I first started going there were Dolly and Barbara Wentz and uh, a couple of other a couple of other people were there. But I think it was just getting out, and, you know, uh, talking and enjoying myself. Right? So. Uh, I had many years to realize I couldn't see. I mean, right. And then obviously there were a lot of people at the center that had the same condition that you did, right? Yeah, not really. When I first started the center, the, the only people that I knew had RP was Dolly. Uh, then I found out later that Carol Milligan had it, had it. And now since then, there's been more people in the center that I found out it had it. There was, um, uh, a couple of people that had it, but have passed away, but it really wasn't, it was more when I first went to center, it was more people with macular. Betty Lou, what did you think of him going to the center? Did, I mean, Sam will say, probably won't tell you, but did you notice a change in him? Oh, absolutely. I, I think number one, he was, um, he was getting out. He was with people that understood what he was going through. Um, and he would come home and he would tell me as to what they were doing. And he really, really enjoyed it. And Emily, um, I think was so sweet and so encouraging to Sam that she really guided him and prodded him. Um, I mean, and you know, he's a people person. So it, it worked out 
it worked out very well. And it also gave me, um, you know, I was so used to him working and to have him home, not that he's an issue being home, but with his eyesight, um, if I'm cleaning, if he goes to get up, I got to move everything out of the way or he'll trip over it. So there were days that was my freedom days. If that, if that makes sense. What was he like at home when he stopped working and his vision started to get worse? Did he get angry? Like, I mean, cause obviously you're not a psychologist. You're not a, a social worker. You don't know how to handle like somebody who is lo losing their vision and you got your own vision issues too. Right. Uh, was he angry? He, he was angry at times, angry when he, you know, walked into a wall, angry and bleeding and bleeding yeah. <laughs> and bleeding, um, angry at, at situations, but not angry at the blindness, if that makes sense. Right. Right. I was a much Betty Lou, nicer what? person than you, Dennis. I'm sorry? I was a much nicer person than you were. All right. Well, okay. The podcast isn't about me. It's about you. Right. Well, so let's I just stick it. on track here, Sam. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Betty Lou, as your condition started to worsen, what other areas of your body start to be uh, were affected? Well, normally when you have one autoimmune, autoimmune you have multiple autoimmunes. So I have now been diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, which is a mouthful, but that is that my, uh, my bones are fusing, um, joints and all of that. So hand in hand with the Sjogren's and the AS, but we're, we're a good couple, you know? <laughs> oh, you're a mess. I know, yeah. but autoimmunes will do that to you. Um, I've noticed a difference in my body now because my gym closed with the pool and the healing pool. Um, so there's a difference in my, uh, in my joints because I'm not in the water and I'm not moving as much, but, um, I just deal with it. What are you going to do, Dennis? You know, I get up in the morning and I put my feet on the ground and I push forward. Tell everybody about, you walking around the neighborhood? I would walk every morning um, and take pictures. I would go out in the beginning of the pandemic. I started going out as soon as the sun came up. So it was um, very quiet and it was me and the deer and the fox and, and, um, and it was very nice. And I walked every day. I walked every day up until the middle of December last year. Is that something that you need to do for your condition? You have to constantly be, be active? Yes. And without having the gym, because the gym was only five minutes from my from our house. And I used to go every morning. Um, and I would meet my friends there and we would be in the pool and we would carry on and sometimes I'd be there two hours it was also a social thing right so when that shut down um that was very difficult on all of us I mean it just wasn't me but it did a number to my body and a lot of other people's bodies that had issues because with the healing pool a lot of people that had medical problems were in the healing pool 
what about when you were walking and some friendly dog came up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, that was an early morning. Again, nobody out, nothing going on except me. And I had a dog come up from behind. Um, I could hear feet and I thought, is that a jogger? Because every once in a while I would see a jogger, but they would be in the street and I was on the pavement. And the next thing I know, I was kind of hit from behind and I went, I face planted on the sidewalk. Oh, yeah. And nobody's around to help you. Nope. Nope. I mean, this was maybe 530 in the morning. And how, how far away were you from your house? Just in the development? I was in the development, but I was, what? Half a mile away. Half a mile away. So luckily so, I was able to get up <laughs> and walk home. But you didn't have your phone with you? From here. <laughs> when she came home, she hands me a pair of scissors. Oh, says, God. Do me a favor, cut this. <laughs> and... I cut something. I had no idea what I was cutting, but it felt like I was cutting through like lasagna or a heavy pasta. And what I cut through was her skin. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But Betty Lou, you didn't have your phone on you? Um I did, but I honestly I had um a sweatshirt on and a jean jacket. And I thought, oh, I'm okay. You know, I was able to get up, but about mm, three minutes after that, I thought, oh, I feel blood running down my arm. Oh. So I, um, I just got home quickly. Yeah. And Sam, like you can't see to help her out. Do you feel like helpless? Uh, frustrated, mad. That's one of the times I really get mad at being blind. I mean, I deal with being blind every day myself, but when I couldn't help her, uh, I get to be like a raving maniac when I can't help her. Right, right. So, <laughs> you guys have so much, I have so many questions for the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> Betty Lou, your eyelashes would grow into your cornea? Yeah, the <sighs> bottom eyelashes. The bottom eyelashes. I have a natural dip in the bottom of my eyelid. And also, as you um, age gracefully, the skin around your eye gets a little bit looser. So the eyelashes were turning in and stabbing the eye. And a lot of times they were causing the scratches on my eye. If anybody's ever had cornea issues that is the most painful eye condition because everybody says with me does your eye hurt mine was related to my retina it didn't hurt yeah. but the cornea is extremely painful yeah it, it was not fun it was to the point at one time i was the, the office was so great i was there maybe four times a week maybe even more than that they even came in on a sunday to cauterize the eyelashes. At first, they were they were plucking them out, and then they started cauterizing them. Is that painful? Um, plucking's not bad. The cauterization was because they, you know, they have to go all the way down to the root in the bottom eyelid. And then, how do they do that? Do they hold both your eyelids open? 
Like, is your eye completely open when they're doing this? Yes, they put an apparatus on there that opens it, so they're not going anywhere. It's like a kind of like a shield, so they're not going anywhere near the um, near the eye itself. They're just dealing with the bottom lid. I mean, I couldn't see it, but that's the way it felt. How long does the procedure take? Oh, just depending on how many eyelashes, a second. It's more oh, like okay. a prep of numbing the eye and, and doing all that. I mean, it's just put it in there and hit the button. Okay. Sam, would you like to tell everybody how sweet and kind I was when I, was, I first came into the center? Remember I said earlier that I was diagnosed with Tourette's? <laughs> all the words I would say with a Tourette's in front of you, you were not a very happy person. Did you, had you ever met anybody like, they, I mean, obviously people come well, in there I'm for old. I met Genghis Khan and he was. <laughs> anybody else who was that angry or, or not angry, but just like, what did you see? Cause I'm sure you saw people come and go and different eye conditions. What did you do to try and help people? Well, basically when, when, when uh, you came in, uh, me and a couple other uh, people in the center would just turn to each other and go, uh, what's with him, but then you seem to loosen up and you became much more uh, friendly and you've evolved into the human being you almost are. <laughs> Sam, you said that all you can see right now is clouds. Uh, it's not really clouds, fog. I can see, I can see light, like a, right now the light in our family room is on. I can see the light. And everything else in the family room right now is just black. It's just darkness. I don't see anything. But if I'm out in the sun and there's a lot of light, then it's like I'm looking through, literally looking. Like, you've ever been on the beach on a foggy day? It's just, yeah. It's just fog. I mean, so it's either I see nothing or I see through, see through fog. And he does have one or two, they call them pixel dentists. Right. And if he concentrate he'll be able to see um the tv or he'll see something um but there's it's it's that's going away but there are times when he'll say oh i just saw that ball go out um you know if he's watching baseball um but the so other it, thing i have that's so exciting is that i have an hallucination caused by my retina that i see a, a dot uh, hard to say how wide it is, but it's a very small lake that just never goes away. It's, I close my eyes, it's there, I have my eyes open, and the uh, eye doctor basically said, it's got nothing to do with your eyes, it's your brain being so confused because of the RP that it's causing this one hallucination. And... Uh, it's right between the middle of my eyes when I look forward. So if I turn my eyes, the dot will go with the eyes. It's um, something that took me a long time to get used to because it just never wanted to go away. And it still doesn't. It's still, it's here so, right now. So there is documentation that you have a brain? <laughs> um, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I, the doctor has said that it's caused by my brain. So... Being, a, you know, someone that can analyze things, that means there has to be a brain. doesn't really work, but I got one. Right. How hard has it been for you the last two years not being able to go to the center? 
uh, quite frankly, the ride to the center was so long for me that leaving out an hour and a half ride every day was was certainly a um, uh, benefit. And with what, listening to Zoom and things is good, but I think the real problem would be for someone that had never been there before, it's devastating because I know I, I know who Barbara is and who Susan is and Gay and all the, the people that I can listen to them. I don't have to see them because I couldn't see them anyhow. But um, I think that, you know, the fact that the center is not having visitors uh, come in is is going to hurt some people. But um, it's, right. it's certainly been different. But uh, Zoom has been a godsend. Although uh, I've been told a few times that uh, when I'm playing trivia, they don't like the fact that, uh, you know, I control the trivia and you played with me and getting the right answer is not considered controlling trivia. Right. Betty Lou, I, I went to a concert with Patty, a, a, I don't know, maybe two or three months ago, and it was Genesis. And Phil Collins, the lead singer of Genesis, mm -hmm. sitting on a stool. Uh, he can no longer play the drums. And he had let everybody know that he has drop leg syndrome. Yep. And then a couple months later, I find out that you are experiencing those issues. Could you explain that? Well, what happened was um, I was... After the dog knocked me down, it was quite a while before I started walking again. It took like three months for the arm to heal. So then I started walking. And every once in a while, I would find my foot kind of dragging a little bit. And I thought, you know, what the heck? Pick your feet up. And then I fell again and damaged the same arm last December. Um, and then when I went to my family doctor he said to me that is what they consider drop foot and that is his feeling was that it was coming from the ankylosing spondylitis and um from my back what can they do to correct that well i am in physical therapy now um i've had two um classes it's a one-on-one -on -one. And Rachel has done really good. Um, it's a learning curve because things that somebody else could do, because you can have drop foot from MS too. It's, you know, a lot of diseases cause it. But um, because mine is from my back, a couple that she gave me put me, that I had to do, put me in excruciating pain because they involved my back and my neck. So we've adjusted it. But there is a remarkable difference just in Sam helps me um, with my exercises. And there was already a very good difference in it. So what I'm going to have to do is keep up with this. And hopefully it doesn't get worse. You know, listening to the two of you, it, it's, it really is stunning to me how much you faced in your life. And you're both so strong and you're not well as me. You just accept it and move on. And then in your case, Betty Lou, something else arises and you're just like, okay, 
But where do you where do you think that strength comes from? Um, that comes from my mother Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy was one strong woman that taught me you need to stand on your feet alone, and you have to look for the good in in life and appreciate it. And um, I think of her. She's been gone for a long time. She was the strongest woman I ever knew. My father was a raging alcoholic. And she raised my brother and I uh, really alone for many, many years. And she was just one tough woman with a lot of love in her. uh, Yeah, she was a sergeant in the Army during World War II. So my father used to call her Sarge. But luckily, my father got sober, and they had many, many years of them traveling and and uh, reconnecting, I guess I want to say. What about you, Sam? Uh, you know, Dennis, I'm an only child, so I never could support me. You know, I never had a big brother or uh, anything, so I just kind of learned to deal with whatever I had to deal with. And... My mom and dad never cut me a lot of slack. You know, if, if something went wrong, they just told me to take care of it. And I, you know, I did. So I kind of think that's just my upbringing, my upbringing. And I didn't grow up in exactly the, uh, with a silver spoon in my mouth. So it was, uh, it was just a toughness. It was everybody my age back where I lived in uh, Frankfurt and Philadelphia. You, you were tough, period. You had to be. If you, you weren't tough, you didn't survive too far. I think basically through these podcasts, you guys are what I've been trying to convey to everybody that's going through a hard time, that you just got to move on, pick up and move on. And I think maybe a lot of it has something to do with your generation. And maybe this generation is a little bit different. But um, you guys are like two of the best people that I've ever met. Um, you know, I love you guys. Thank even you, Don. I, I rip into, even though I rip into both of you. <laughs> and I really, 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 truly appreciate you guys sharing your story with me. And I'm sorry that this was such a uh, in and out conversation, but yes. hopefully it'll turn out fine. Oh, yeah. I hope so. It should be good. I, I, I have hope. one question. When are you I, mailing the check? All right. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. And I'll talk to you later. Thank you. All right, thanks, Dennis. Dennis. All right, bye. Bye. Hey, you got a new passion.